0: this is varna Oaks. welcome we have some rain this morning but it's great it's a great 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 day and we have miss helen rosenthal who is a city council person from new york good morning miss rosenthal hi how are you great how are you doing
1: very good thank you i'm excited to be on the show
0: thank you i'm so i'm so pleased that you took time out of your busy schedule to come and talk to us and I see that you were born in October, and so was I. You're getting ready to have really? a birthday. I just had
1: mine. I my. am. Uh, happy birthday. Thank <laughs> <Same> to you.
0: <laughs> How did you get to be a city council person?
1: Oh, wow. We're going to go what's way that, what's back. What's that
0: route like? How did that happen?
1: <laughs> well, one thing I would say, and I say this because good People who enjoy public policy and think it's important, especially at a time like now, should realize that there are many different paths to becoming an elected official. Everyone has their own path. And the important thing is that they embrace their own path and make it work for them. So for me... I have never been a part of the political system. You know, My first job coming out of graduate school in New York City was with the city, overseeing the city's health care budget, so very much an administrative, a financial, and public policy job, and then became very active in my community, joined my local community board, raise my children for the next sort of 20 years after seven years with the city and then decided that I could use the platform of an elected position to advance the policies that I think are very important, one of which is raising the vote for everyone and making sure everyone's income goes up and families are in a better situation to thrive.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. I had heard a definition of politicians are a group of people that come together to solve community problems.
1: That is very generous. I would like to take that definition. I would too.
0: I think too often politicians, too many politicians come into politics to see how they can benefit themselves or their family members and not solve community problems necessarily. But I get it. So you sound like you're one of those people that got into politics to solve problems and put forth the policies that you think might solve those problems. Is that right?
1: It's been, like, incredibly exciting um, to be able to use this platform. I think I went in thinking, okay, I have a mastery of the budget, so I'll be able to make sure that we're funding the programs that we care about and we're not wasting money in other areas or there's no fraud and abuse, and certainly I've been able to achieve that. But as a legislator, being able to identify problems and legislate solutions is incredibly exciting. And takes us so much farther than simply talking about, you know, having it be an academic experience, talking about public policy or, you know, being in an economics class and sort of thinking, oh, what if we implement these things? It should be good. Now I'm actually doing those things or legislating them. And that's very exciting.
0: Fantastic. I mean, so it sounds like you rather walk to talk instead of just talking to talk. (laughs)
1: I like to think so. Okay. I was at a block association meeting last night with about 30 people in someone's living room, and at the end they say, we'd like to give you a raise. I said, okay, that's very good. Never going to happen, but thank you for that sentiment.
0: (laughs) They wanted to give you a raise as money to raise your... Salary. To raise
1: my salary just on the spot. Of course, that will never happen. But I like to connect with people so that they feel that way. So they feel good about their politicians and know that their local politicians are fighting for them, especially at a time when, I mean, I don't know who your listeners are, but I feel the federal government is selling the American people short. Oh,
0: you said that very softly, the federal government is selling the people short. You can shout that out. I agree with that, particularly right yeah. now. But I've gotten that politicians, all politicians are for, for the people. Here's the difference, though, that too often politicians, particularly it looks like Republicans. I'm not sure about this totally. They are for the people that have got them elected, and those are rich people. And... Democrats, not all, are for the everyday people. So the those that are looking for the wealthy, like this tax reform, it seems like that's all geared. What Trump put through is for the wealthy and the rich, and that seems to be what's going on here. Not for the masses of people, those that below 50 percent of the income line or 75 percent, those in poverty, that don't seem to be helping. So I like you. You're saying that when the tide rises. The boat rises, but everybody in the boat rises, not just the captain of the ship or the crew. That's right.
1: That's Uh, right. And there's no question that you're right. You know that Trump leading the way. You know that the Republicans have jumped on his bandwagon, and public policy has gone in the wrong direction where, you know, he's eliminating regulations that have protected the earth. He's eroding protections for women now with this appointment. Uh, Very likely that Roe v. Wade will be overturned. His economic policies certainly help himself and, and his Clack of friends, but you know certainly are not helping the people who really need it, who government is supposed to serve.
0: We got it. We got the mm-hmm. message, and I'm so glad that you chose to get into politics and run and create policies that get these things done. Now, Thank you. how do you, you grew up in Detroit? <laughs> yeah, Motor City.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, best rock and roll. Grew up with the best rock and roll stations, and yeah, great concerts.
0: (laughs) So I like Motown. I I Mm -hmm. I went there in '69, no '66, and I worked at Ford Dearborn. um, Oh wow! For one for nine months, I, I worked on the assembly line, and I realized that I would not do that for the rest of my life, and I went back to college. Uh, mm. But I like. But what it. a
1: great time to have that job, though. Actually,
0: it was awesome.
1: Yeah, where did you live?
0: A couple places. I lived with some family members, and then I got a place, and I got another place, and I can't tell you anymore. But my, my... <laughs>
1: no, but I mean, did you live in Detroit? Oh, I or... lived in You're Detroit. Born...
0: I know. I live right. I live right in Detroit. And my wow. brother came up from Kentucky State too when I was there and he got a job, and he he raised his family there. Sort of wow, close to close to Motown is where he raised his family, and so go back there now and look at the blighted housing that you would have, you know, given an arm for in the '60s and '70s. It is, it's sad. It's really, really sad. But you left Detroit. In I did, migrant.
1: but. Yeah, but when I was there, my um, mother, as an adult, got her PhD at Wayne State, mm-hmm. and she studied the riots, the '67 riots. She was a sociologist, and her topic was rumor control during the riots. So, if you could imagine back then, '66, '67, '68, that um, there were no, um, you know, cell phones. Um, no way to communicate e- with each other except by phone or by watching the news. Um, the city set up a rumor control hotline. Hmm. So if someone was, um, you know, living on the street, and wanted to go grocery shopping a couple of blocks away, they could call the rumor control hotline and say, "I want to go grocery shopping three blocks away. Is it safe for me to walk there now?" Wow. And, um, yeah, and we just, she learned so much from that, and it's uh, definitely uh, shaped the way I think about things.
0: So your mom went back and got a Ph.D. My mom went back and graduated when I was 13 from Bluefield State College. We, I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia. Oh, She had six kids, and she graduated magna cum laude. But unfortunately, as a black woman, uh, she could teach. She—I didn't find out until she passed away, and I was going through her, her stuff. That she, her degree was in. She had a business administration degree. I, wow. I never knew that. And, so, and
1: she did teach.
0: She taught, yes.
1: Yeah. She taught. So did my mom. <laughs> okay. Same thing. <laughs>
0: Both born in October, moms <laughs> and teachers go back to school and become our
1: exactly
0: our heroines, our heroes. Yeah, that's
1: right, our heroes. So how
0: how how did you get to know anything about this co-op world? How did you get that
1: knowledge? Well, interestingly, you know, when I was a little girl, my mom put me in a co-op nursery school, and. Um, so really integrated into my bones is understanding what a worker cooperative does and how it can be so beneficial to the families or, or the, the earners, you know, the family earners who participate and can have a more humane, respectful and well-paying job experience compared to another setting. So I grew up with that as a guiding philosophy. And when several organizations in New York City who are developing worker cooperatives came to the New York City Council to talk about what they've been doing and what they've been able to achieve, it immediately caught my attention. And, you know, I was
0: sold at hello. Okay. Okay. Hello. Okay, where do I sign? Yeah, exactly. That
1: (laughs) was exactly right. Yeah.
0: So you've introduced the word worker cooperative. So for people out there that don't know, I want to give four quick definitions on co-ops, four different types of co-ops. So co-ops can be any business you can think of can be a cooperative. If it's owned and controlled by the people that work there, the employees, is called a worker cooperative. So, if the employees own the business, control the business, then it's a the worker cooperative. If the people that uses the products or services own and control the business, it is called a consumer cooperative. The consumers own and control the business. Credit unions, housing co-ops, but any business. Sometimes um, child care could be a, a consumer business where the parents own the co-op and sometimes it's a worker cooperative where the employees own it same thing for food co-ops most of the time they are consumer co-ops but sometimes the employees will own it or you get a hybrid where it's owned by the consumers and employees the other two very quickly helen is the um, producer co-ops or those co-ops are purchasing co-ops the purchasing co-ops is what i'm thinking about purchasing co-ops are a lot of farmers will come together and they will buy their seed or fertilizer or gas or even equipment together and they can get normally buy in volume and get a lower price and better quality because they have people working in that co-op to understand the vendors and and the products that they're buying so also artists are beginning to use this uh, purchasing co-op and they may buy a house where they can live in, or they may buy a studio, or if they're making things, they may buy a warehouse where they can make it and then a storefront where they can sell. So those are the three. And then the fourth one is a marketing cooperative and that's farmers. They're the bigger ones. They, they ninety nine hundred 900 farmers, I think own, cabbage and it's much more than that now, but cabbage cheese or, um, organic Valley ocean spray are examples of farmers come together and create a business and they take their product there and those businesses will add value to them, make butter, cheese, milk, whatever. And then they'll have more markets they can sell to. So those are the four types and you get the same things that you were talking about benefits to the members. And more often it's not, Oh, let me give you this quote, and then I'll let you talk about your experience. But a lady by the name of Dame Pauline Green was on air here, and she said that co-ops help people to come out of poverty with dignity. And I like that quote a lot, and that's what we can find when you say people raised in the boat. But those are the four types, and you were talking about worker co-ops, but New York is also known for their housing co-ops. Do you work at all with the housing cooperative?
1: I have a number of housing cooperatives in my district. But that is not something that this administration is currently promoting. Okay. But housing cooperatives were, were used as a mechanism back in, the I think, in the 80s when there was city-owned property or perhaps city-owned because a building had gone into default where the city had uh, – and, and squatters moved in to a building. And what the city did was sign leases with those squatters where they gave them ownership of the building and a very generous tax reduction on the property with the understanding that those owners would manage the building together and bring it into a state of good repair and abide by affordability rules whereby an apartment uh, an apartment could not be sold for more than a certain amount of money, and people below a certain income level were eligible to purchase an apartment.
0: You know, that sounds uh, kind of like uh, some of the work that's done here in the district. And there's a gentleman that I, there, it's an uh, organization called UHAB, U-H-A-B. Yeah hmm In New York.
1: So you have had a contract with the city to help these newly formed uh, housing cooperatives to learn how to keep their buildings in the black and, you know, be able to live within their budget. And and that was part of the model. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, they're still very much in existence. and. Yep there's a group down here that uh, city council person, I always give a shout out to Anita Bonds. Uh, she just formed an LEC task force. That's a limited equity cooperative task force to look at the problems mm. of limited equity co-ops and then make, make solutions or recommendations for solutions. And we're going to have Mr. Riker come down and speak to us in a week or two. Um, on oh, His great. experiences in New York so we can share this information. So just finding out ways how to get folks out of homelessness or those people too often they're working poor.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. I, there's a good percentage of people in our homeless shelters in New York, many families that are the working poor. They have, you know, full-time minimum wage jobs and can't afford to find an apartment here. But back to the council member who's looking at limited equity ownership mm-hmm. For people, you know, it, it might, I, I think it's great that you're having you have come and, and talk about the experience that New York City has had. Because I think, in retrospect, New York City, the government did these buildings a disservice by not investing in the buildings themselves, not helping those new owners to put those buildings into good repair and so the burden of repairing the buildings you know just basic infrastructure boilers plumbing you know
0: electricity roofs,
1: electricity yeah exactly Windows. That stuff there wasn't enough money given to those uh, new owners who were you know low-income working families who had the new ownership they didn't necessarily have the means to do those repairs so over time interestingly the housing cooperatives in poor neighborhoods have not really been able to get off the ground but the housing cooperatives in neighborhoods that are wealthier have been able to I believe skirt the rules and sell some of their apartments for now a tremendous amount of money. And with that income, they've been able to do the repairs to leave their buildings in better shape. So then you're faced with this conundrum of, oh, it's not 100% 100 affordable, this building anymore. They had to flip some of the apartments, which were not part of the original deal.
0: Right. Well, that's part of the problem. Uh, there's a couple of groups here, Mana and Mikasa, two nonprofits that have helped to come in and renovate housing. I'm, I'm a property mm-hmm. manager. That's where I learned about co-ops. I was not fortunate enough to live in a in a co-op as a kid. I didn't find out about it going mm-hmm. through school. There was no education. It was 25 years ago when I started managing housing. I've found this co-op, this model, and i fell fallen in love with it, and that's why we do this show. I also find that a lot of people don't know about them. So when somebody like you, I find out that knows about them, and it's in their soul, <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's wonderful. But uh, Andy Riker is his name. I think I misspelled it from you, Hab, who's coming down. Uh, but uh, 15 years, like I've got a senior citizen, a 16-unit senior citizen, we're in downtown DC right now. A one bedroom is three fifty to four fifty, and a two bedroom is like from four four fifty to five fifty. And they were doing extremely well, except now after sixteen years, we've got HVACs that are starting to break down, and there's some yeah. roofing issues that are starting to happen. And they haven't been able to save because they made it that you could only make a thousand dollars um a month. And be over sixty-two to come in. Well, if somebody's right. making a thousand dollars. If you got three fifty coming out or four fifty, that doesn't leave a lot of room for savings to take care of these things. That's so right. Even if the renovation had been done, now I can even imagine those buildings that there was no renovation done. But even when the renovation is done, after a while, if you don't have the way of creating this re- reserves or savings, they're they're find themselves as they're finding out beginning to run out of money.
1: So. One of the things that, um, as you say, there are a number of models of worker cooperatives. One thing that I think is really important is the training component so that the people who are owners are aware of the importance of reserves. You know, this is why this is so important and why you have to start managing it, managing for it right from the get-go. And that initial training is so vital.
0: Could you say that a little bit louder?
1: <laughs> sure. <laughs> right, right, right. So, I mean, go ahead.
0: No, the, the, there are seven cooperative principles. And number five, the fifth principle is training information to get information out. And that becomes critical. Now, have you heard the name Dr. Jessica Gordon-Demhardt? Mm mm, no. Uh, she teaches in New York. I just lost to okay. university where she teaches, and she wrote a book called Collective Carriage, and I'd encourage you to get that book. It talks about the history of cooperatives in the African American experience.
1: Yes. And it's, yes, a, huge that I'm familiar with. Yeah, it's a huge history. Yeah, wonderful history. Huge history. Wonderful history. And that's definitely where the worker cooperative movement came from in the United States.
0: She teaches at John Jay. Okay. Oh, great. I didn't remember. And she's extremely busy because she's always on a circuit, but she just has a great, great. Mm-hmm. And the reason I brought her up is she said a lot of co-ops in the African-American experience, it started with uh, training, with education. And she called them like education beads or something where people come together and get education. And whenever they got into trouble, and something started happening wrong, they would go back to these education beads, these, these huddles mm-hmm. where they, they continue to learn. That becomes That's extremely great. critical.
1: So- That's great. And then another part of the history is then Southern farmers and the owners of electricity then co-opted, the worker (laughs) co-op. That's not really the right word, but sort (laughs) of became worker cooperatives also. So you had those two different models and two different purposes, um, different tracks, and, you know, for a long time, I think especially with electricity, it's what kept a small number of people very wealthy in owning the electricity, but they were established as worker cooperative.
0: So you had the rural electric cooperatives who had the electric grid for 75% of the land mm. and they're in 80 counties, 80% of the counties in the U.S., Wow. Um, so it's huge. And it was people coming together. Now, they did get help in the 30s and 40s with some monies from the federal government to help start these. But the people that had money in the urban areas for electricity, they thought it was not profitable to go out into the rural areas. So, and it is, these electrical co ops are consumer co ops. So the people that use the, the electricity, those households, uh, those farms, those are the ones that own these rural electric co ops. And that's amazing history, just tremendous history and story. In a minute or so, we're going to have to take our first break. And I would like to come back and talk about the work you've done, the laws you've passed to create worker co-ops in New York. Mm. So, well, he just told me we got two more minutes. Okay. Okay. Uh, (laughs) There's another group when you talk about farmers it's called the uh, Federation of Southern co-ops and those are, Mm. and the, 13 southern states in the black belt, which are mostly black people, very poor country, Mississippi, Alabama. And they created a co-op in the 60s coming out of the civil rights movement. They've been on the air and they told me stories like um, the white farmers would not sell them gas because they wanted to wow. vote. And if they went out to vote. then they Oh, wouldn't. my goodness. So they created their own worker co-ops and they bought a truck and they went across state line and bought <laughs> gas and they came back. So there was we a problem. And, and voted. And the cooperators, by cooperating and working together, sharing resources and talents and skills and knowledge, they could they could overcome this stuff.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah, you're right. It has a great history.
0: Well, it's fantastic to talking to you. We're going to take our first break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The National Cooperative Bank sponsors this program. They've been a sponsor for the last five years. Not only have they helped with the money, but they really helped to motivate us when we came to them with an idea. And we were only going to do it for one month, the month of October, which is Cooperative Month. And NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And Ms. Helen Rosenthal is our guest today. She's a city council person for the city of New York. She was elected in 2013. She represents the Upper West Side, which includes Central Park. Yep. Your leading voice on issues like gender equality, civic engagement, affordable housing, education equity, and adequate funding for social service programs. Thank you again for being on. So my
1: pleasure. It's, you know, just delightful chatting with someone who is so incredibly knowledgeable about worker cooperatives. I'm learning a lot. So thank you for having me on. (laughs)
0: Great. Great. How many, you said you raised your children. How many children do you have? Two. Two. How old?
1: 25 and 22.
0: Okay. (laughs) Any grandchildren yet? No, no. Okay.
1: No, but um, don't tell them, but I'm, I'm counting the days.
0: I know that's right.
1: (laughs) I'm ready when they're ready.
0: Oh, that's right. Okay.
1: But please, to your audience, don't tweet that out.
0: (laughs) The reason I asked the question is everything you're doing today, I assume, from talking to you is geared toward how we leave the world for them. Does that sum up some of your work and why you do your work?
1: You know, sure. And I love my kids, and I definitely worry for my grandchildren especially when it comes to climate change. And I think that how the government takes care of those who are struggling the most will have uh, a tremendous impact on how quickly we succumb to climate change. So it's true for our country. And it's, it's true for the world. And to the extent that we are continuing to pollute our earth, continuing to use fossil fuels, it is to the detriment of our children and our children's children. So, yes. Okay.
0: <laughs> I couldn't have said that any better, and I really appreciated what you said and how you said it. And I already understand how you got 87% of the vote, 87.3% <laughs> of the vote in 2017. Yeah, it's wonderful. They say that you have gotten more votes than anybody else in New York political world. Is well, it? yes. <laughs> okay, be humble. Okay, Yes, all right. all
1: right. No, I'm very proud of that, and our office works really hard for our constituents.
0: Great, and it's a pleasure having to talk to you. Uh, and I see why you you get the vote that you get. And uh, so, h- tell me about how you created laws to help worker cooperatives. I got it in your blood since you were a kid. But how, what kind of laws did you create, and how did you, what was that process like?
1: Well, that's a great question because. As a legislator, that's very separate from being on the administrative side where a mayor or an executive really decides how to spend a municipality's money and where to focus that spending. In New York City, we have a little bit of latitude on the budget side, and we have obviously quite a bit of say when it comes to legislating. When I first brought up this issue in 2014 with all of the advocates for worker cooperatives, it was um, not something that was well-known and it faced many hurdles. And the lowest hanging fruit for us were two things: one, to for me to ask my colleagues if they would support a citywide effort of funding um, about a dozen nonprofit organizations that uh, work to um, set up, to educate, to provide financial support, access to credit for working uh, for worker cooperatives. And I have 50 colleagues. Uh, we each represent about 170,000 people. So, for a city of 8.5 million, there are 51 of us. And I was able to convince them that for the little bit of money that the city council has to allocate citywide, we should dedicate some of that funding to this model of um, lifting. People in a way where they could be really in control of their own lives versus working for companies that don't look out for them in any way, shape, or form and instead treat them as expendable. And my colleagues, I really appreciate them very much because they um, were all on board. They voted to um, choose this initiative as one that would be funded that year. That was for the fiscal year 2015 budget. And we put in $1.2 million to fund, I forget, it was eight or 10 nonprofit organizations that had already begun to think about how to help worker cooperatives. And those organizations pledged to start within the first year, 20 new worker cooperatives, and try to employ or or have as worker owners at least 100 people, and they laid out a strategic plan for how they would get there, and we funded them and proceeded to track their their work, and at the end of that first year, I think they had given information to over a thousand people had gotten around 20 it might have been a little less worker cooperatives off the ground Boy. and those worker cooperatives were able to employ just under a hundred people so they proved they could do what they said they were going to do at the same time I wanted to get the administration's attention can, can,
0: I, can I stop you a second? I'm sorry.
1: Sure.
0: I, I think you need a clap because to get ah. 20, 20 worker co-ops started in a year or 19 or 18, how many, Fifteen five. 5, is phenomenal. So that, yeah. that tells me that there was some, some people already in a pipeline because they have to get that training. They That's have to get right. set up. They have the legal, da-da-da-da-da-da, the marketing and all of that stuff to put together. So to have... T- a little less than 20 and employing over 100. I think you just need a shout out and say, hallelujah, yeah. that's great. Okay. Well, thank that's,
1: you. Good. We put in $1.2 million for these organizations to do that work. And over that time, they also... Yes, you're right. They were. They already had some worker cooperatives in the pipeline. That's what gave them confidence that they could Do meet it. that target of 20. And during that year, they set up new worker cooperatives to be in the pipeline for the following year. And indeed, the next year, my colleagues were convinced and um, they agreed to put in that year, $2.1 million. So Almost doubled. doubled. Fantastic. The investment. And that year, the groups were able to um, start up 17 new worker cooperatives and have 164 new hires. So 164 new workers. hires. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So by the end of the second year, we had employed... Uh, 300 people who would have otherwise worked at what would have been dead-end jobs. But now we're worker owners, were part of um, a team and had a network around them to support them so they could have dignity in their work. And we found over time that the average pay per hour is $25 an hour. And these are people Wait, who a otherwise
0: shout. would have had $25 per hour. <laughs>
1: Yeah, otherwise would have had minimum wage jobs, dead-end jobs, where there would be, you know, um, well, let me say it in a positive way. Uh, With the worker cooperative, as, as worker owners, there's more understanding for someone's family life. If there's a sick one and you have to stay home for that, there's somebody to cover you much more generously than in, another workplace. I wish you
0: could see me. I'm dancing out here in in Uh, the studio because
1: you know, that's uh, funny. You say that because when we were able to achieve these things, I too did the happy dance. (laughs) So I'm with you again, this October thing
0: $25 an hour. See, I wanted to get that to Bernie Sanders. I really tried to get him on and said, you're talking about $15 minimum wage. Right. And and that is trying to get these other employees to raise this. I mean, the McDonalds and WalMarts and all of these to try to get them to raise the minimum wage. And it throws their model way off for their profit. That's right. And in a book, have you seen a book? Um, Communities creating wealth.
1: Oh no! By sounds good.
0: Democratic, uh, collective, collaborative, democracy, collaborative. Mm. You go on their well, webpage that- and you can get it free.
1: Okay, um, and that's, I think they're based in New York, no? I think,
0: I think I, at University of Maryland is where they were. I'm not sure. There's there's a lot of this going on.
1: Well, and also many of the groups have the word democracy in right. their title. Yes, so. I get them confused. <laughs> we I fund one, some, a group with that in their title.
0: So they talked about a lady named Christina out of New York who was doing maid service, and she was making 7 bucks an hour. And she got into a cooperative and her salary went to 20 bucks.
1: Exactly. And she was treated with respect by her co owners.
0: What she ended up doing was working less hours so she could raise her two kids. That's right. Okay, so she had choice in the matter, she made more money. And now she can choose how she spends her time and the whole society, the whole world is better off because mom is spending more time with her children and raising her children and she's making the money she needs. And she feels good about herself. That it goes on and on and on. Why don't more people know about this world co-op? Thank you for being on. <laughs>
1: okay. Well, but that's the exact point is that the trickle it has into the community is culture changing. Is gives uh, community an opportunity to thrive and you know we all know that women are the glue to the family and women are the glue to a community and to the extent that you can support a woman in that way she's still a housekeeper you know that's her job she that's that's a great job she should take pride in that job but instead of being treated poorly and paid low wages she can hold her head high and can spend more time, as you say, with her family and therefore be a positive contribution to her community.
0: Absolutely. And the money stays in the community. And a little bit I got out of my economics class is the more times the money turns in the community, the better the communities are. So in a co-op, it turns five to eight times. In a regular one, if she was working for somebody else, the likelihood she spent it on her way back home and it never even got it, at best it turned one time in the community and is gone. Yeah. So it's it, a great point. Everything you can think about it works for the community, for enhancing the community. Thank you for getting it yeah. in your bones. So how did you get them people to say yes, though? That's the well, you said there was, it was a lot a of
1: funny hmm? a story. I actually um so I passed what I passed, what I was able to get the administration to sort of agree to um, the the sort of middle management uh, administration to agree to was a reporting bill, so we could ask the um, the small the Department of Small Business Services to report on not only the work that these nonprofits were doing but the work they were doing to support worker cooperatives and they agreed to that, but the best day was when we had the bill signing. And, you know, the mayor of New York is a busy guy, and I understand he has a lot on his plate, and there are a lot of things to think about, and we pass a lot of bills, and I get it, he didn't necessarily pay that much attention to this bill coming along, but on the day of the bill signing, we were at the fancy hearing and, you know, a lot of press around and, you know, really exciting but he's clearly reading his notes sort of for the first time. <laughs> and I had been really had to fight hard to get this bill passed and and then for the mayor to sign it. He's about to sign the law, but he's reading out loud what the bill does. And you can see the expression on his face change from one of, you know, his regular face to Oh my god this is so exciting we're doing worker cooperatives and he looked over at me and he said oh leave it to rosenthal to do what my heart really believes in these worker cooperatives this is so great and you know i could not help but shoot a look at some of his staff like i told you so this is a good thing and since then the mayor has really been on board What's interesting now, and something I'd like to make sure we cover before the end of the show, Mm -hmm. is that... Over the last four years, on the city council side, we've continued to be supportive and fund these nonprofits more and more money every year in order to build more. And we've had great success in New York. But this approach is very much a bottom-up approach. It's individuals who... You know maybe want to start a catering company but don't know how to do it as a worker cooperative model take classes learn how to do it and then start their own worker cooperative or we've started and then attracting more worker owners to the cleaning business the house cleaning business and also the caretaker business So that's been very exciting. But in the last year, the mayor has brought in a new deputy mayor. His name is Dr. Phil Thompson. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know him, but he's been a wonderful academic. He taught at MIT, but also has been very active in starting worker cooperatives, but from a different perspective, from the perspective of okay, we have New York City government and we do things like have many public schools that we need furniture for. Right. And so his notion is, oh, let's start a worker cooperative factory where people come in, they come in as worker owners, but they're already guaranteed business with the city so that we know they can be successful. So he's thinking about it from the perspective of furniture for schools. He's working with the hospital, the local hospital association, and of course with our you know, city-funded hospitals to see if we couldn't build furniture for hospitals as well. So he's bringing this different perspective to the worker cooperative model that's really very exciting and a different approach but similarly will lift the people who get those jobs and who become worker owners in those what will be factories really um again rather than a minimum wage or a low wage you know paying job now they'll be owners of this business and then well, the third model. Go ahead.
0: I just wanted. I don't know if you heard of Evergreen uh, Cooperative in yes. Cleveland. Okay. Yes, and he
1: comes from that model. Oh,
0: good. Okay. Go. Yes. All right.
1: Yes. I okay. think he worked there. And then the other thing that we're trying to get off the ground now is um, someone from uh, one of the nonprofit groups called the ICA Group um, working closely. Um, With another group, I just want to get their name, called Democracy at Work Institute. They both are, those two organizations are working together to convert businesses that already exist into a worker cooperative model. So that the current owner, yeah, converts and sells it to the workers. And we're doing that, hopefully, with a school bus company, which would be really exciting.
0: Wow. Because it says my birthday, I was 71. So I'm one of the baby boomers, but okay. they said that 50%. I think it's 50. It's a huge number of businesses, small business in the U S that are owned by baby boomers or senior. There's another term, silver lining or some word that they use for us. And, um, it's like too often these business will if the family members don't want them and less and less family members are wanting them. And then if they can't find a seller, then they close. And then these people lose their jobs and that business goes away. And we're trying to figure out how to get to these business owners so that they know here's another option. Sell it to
1: your employees. Yep. Yep. And we will help your employees run the company successfully. Absolutely.
0: With the ecosystem, that, that networking that you're talking about the training and everything that needs to go into it. Phenomenal. Really great. So, three different so ways of doing it. That's really this.
1: exciting. Yeah.
0: So, you, you talked about the one where the ladies now are getting $25 an hour. Any Men other and example? women. Yeah. Men and women. Okay.
1: Right. I mean, we have. So, right now, there are, hang on, one, two, three, four, five, six. A, as I say, over a dozen nonprofits that are. Helping these worker cooperatives get off the ground and the worker cooperatives themselves Are and you you name the business and they've got a worker cooperative uh, That exists in that area. For example, there's a OSHA training Worker cooperative that is so you would train uh, uh, laborers to make sure they have their safety training to go work on a job. That's a worker cooperative. Another one is a dog walking worker cooperative. Another one is called Black Women Artists. Um, A couple of daycare businesses. um, A whole bunch of cleaning services, different types of cleaning services, many of which are environmentally driven, one called Green Fiend Organics, a printing shop, a production studio, a technology and web building company, so all sorts of businesses that can get off the ground in the using the worker cooperative model. And I know, although I don't think we necessarily helped with this, but there is a national company that makes ladies lingerie. It's called Hanky Pinky. Okay. (laughs) And they pride themselves on all manufacturing being done in the United States. And a couple of years ago, they sold to their workers. And it was the exact story that you're talking about where they were getting older, they were getting ready to retire. It was two women who were partners. And they began working with one of these nonprofit organizations to help um, their workers take it over. And it's been incredibly successful.
0: So are they housed in New York or how did you find out? Yes.
1: Yes, they have a, a manufacturing base in New York City in Brooklyn, actually.
0: So what you've just done is you've, you've just helped to, the definition I got for a worker cooperative. It can be any business you can think of. You just gave examples <laughs> of business all over the map. Large, small, it doesn't national, local, five people, two people walking dogs or yeah. cleaning houses or making web pages or manufacturing. It just doesn't make any difference. I'd like to see Definitely. more government printing shops or businesses um, become worker owned. Um uh, Whether it's Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, Freddie Freddie Mae, Freddie Mac, it doesn't. Whatever the business is that your that that New York City is doing to helping people provide services, what would it look like if those businesses were owned by those people doing the work, (laughs) and they hold each other accountable? That's what causes it to work so much better anyway. And they know what they can do to improve productivity. That's why you can go from seven bucks to twenty bucks or seven bucks to twenty five. Is because you share in the profit and they become better run.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely 100%. I mean, that's that's why it's a win-win-win-win all around the place because if the worker is owns the business themselves or or a printing or a government, you know, regulator, whatever the institution is, Everyone, I mean, I, you know, do it myself. You care more if your name is on the line. You know, you care more if your, you know, your future income is on the line and could be higher if you worked more strategically, not necessarily harder but more strategically. And if by working more strategically, you brought that income home to your family, it's going to be better run just by definition.
0: (laughs) We only have another minute left. I do want to quickly say that in the tradition of cooperative founders, cooperative members believe in the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for one another. In that, also fits in with everything that you've just talked about. But what would you like to leave people with?
1: There are a lot of agencies, organizations, that want to help worker cooperatives get off the ground. They are a tried-and-true model. If there are elected officials out there who are willing to invest in them, they will have great success, and if you're a worker who's Thinking about joining with others to become a worker cooperative, take the leap. it's worth it.
0: Take the leap.:
1: <laughs>
0: Well, I look forward to meeting you, Ms. Rosenthal. We can do a happy dance together.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well It was such a pleasure chatting with you. It's so nice to be talking with a kindred spirit.:
0: Do you like what you do?
1: Love. love my job. I, it's a really great fit. There are term limits in New York City, so uh, this is my last term, and it makes me motivated to do even more and to, frankly, make sure that the worker cooperative funding becomes uh, institutionalized over the next three years.
0: Okay, so so what I get is your term limit is up for being a city council person, but there's some other <laughs> role for you. I mean, it could be mayor, okay? It could be something else, but oh. his term limit is up. But go for it, I look for, all right, great things. Keep going. <laughs>
1: Keep Thank you so much, I really appreciate you.
0: Thank you so very much, and everybody out there, please have a wonderful, wonderful week, and live cooperatively. Thanks. Nice. Thank you.